0: Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our Savior. Amen. I never thought that I would be tempted to apologize for having a passage of Scripture be read in the worship service. And as a matter of principle, I will not apologize. However, I will acknowledge that this is a very graphic passage of Scripture. And beyond the graphic aspects, it is also terrifying. It gives us a picture of what life would be like if everything comes apart. In our passage, the Syrians have stopped making raids into Israel as they were doing earlier in chapter 6. And now they have decided... That they are going to send the entire army against Israel in one great decisive campaign. So they swept into the land and they laid siege to the city of Samaria. We typically think of Samaria as the remnant nation of Israel that was left after the Assyrians carried them off into exile. But our texts rather uh, place it, our texts rather, takes place before that happened. And so it can be a bit confusing. In our text, the city of Samaria was the capital city of Israel for about 200 years in the 8th and 9th centuries. And so afterwards, after the Assyrians ended up carrying uh, them off into exile, then they ended up calling uh, the remnant Samarians. Uh, or Samaritans. And but uh, the city of Samaria, of Sam, Samaria was uh, located on a hill a hill that rose about 300 feet above the surrounding valleys. And so Samaria then held a commanding view of the surrounding countryside. George Turner in his historical geography of the Holy Land says, its location, elevation, and distance from the surrounding hills when joined with defensive walls made it almost impregnable. So what we have happen is the Syrians sweep into Israel and in order to completely overtake the nation, they surround Samaria uh, with the armies. But Samaria, being a high, um, being a a city located on a hill, instead of trying to attack it, they surrounded it and laid siege to it. Uh, They did not uh, encamp at the bottom of the of the hills, but rather, uh, what they did was they apparently encamped on the the hills surrounding it, so that. With the city, then you had also the valley, and then the Syrians were on the hills opposite. So uh, theoretically, a person would be able to go outside the walls of the city and uh, find out if there were food or something like that. But they would not be able to escape the siege. The siege was very effective. In fact, the situation was in the city of Samaria was very dire. And each succeeding day, the situation grew more desperate. During the Civil War, when General Grant had laid siege to the city of Richmond, Virginia, someone placed in the store window uh, a sign that said, Bacon, $20 a pound. A live hen, uh, $50 each. Beef. $15 $15 a pound. A fresh shad, $50 a pair. Butter, $20 a pound. And that was a time when uh, the, a dollar had much more value than it does today. And so we find, find the same kind of extreme inflation in Samaria. A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, we probably have some idea of how many calories we could get from eating a donkey's head. Probably not a lot of calories. Surely none of those calories would be very appetizing. But how much was a shekel worth? A standard wage was about one shekel per month. And so a donkey's head then was 80 shekels. Eighty months of wages for a donkey's head to be able to eat it. So only the really, really rich could afford to eat a donkey's head. And no, it was not a delicacy. You know, you cut off the head and you would throw the head in the garbage if you were going to eat the rest of the body. And I also must mention that a donkey, whether you're eating the head or the body, was to be considered unclean according to Leviticus chapter 11. So there was a real sense of desperation. Now if only the rich could afford to eat a donkey's head, what could the middle class afford to eat? According to verse 2, they could only eat a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung. And for our teenage boys here, that's dove's poop. And it cost five shekels of silver. Five weeks' wages for a fourth part or a quarter cab of dove's dung. That translates to about half a pint of dove's dung for five weeks' wages. And they were going to eat that. The situation was very, very desperate. And that's for the middle class who might be able to afford five weeks' wages for half a pint of that nastiness. But this begs the question, if the rich and the middle class could afford to buy something to eat, however detestable it might be, what could the, the, the poor afford to eat? Well, frankly, they could not afford to eat. And that led to panic. Listen to verses 28 and 29. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give, give your son that we may eat him today, and we, we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son And ate him, and on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. I'll leave those two verses without comment. You might be asking, Where is God when there is such human desperation? Surely the people in Samaria were praying. Surely they were. And they were praying desperately. They were praying fervently. I have no doubt about that. So then why was God not answering their prayers? Why would God allow the circumstances to become so dire that a mother would be willing to kill her son, then boil him and eat him? Just this past week, A 24-story housing complex in West London was completely consumed by fire. I assume you saw it on the news. If you saw any of the pictures, it was horrifying to see every floor consumed. Fire coming from every window. And it started at the bottom and rose up. How would those people at the top get out The desperation was such that one woman threw her infant child out of her ninth-story apartment window. Remarkably, someone on the ground caught that baby. But the question still remains, where is God when there is such human desperation? They were estimating that over a hundred people Perished in that fire i cannot answer why god allowed that particular building to burn the best i can do is give you jesus's answer <laughs> excuse me when when he was asked essentially the same question In Luke chapter 13, in Luke 13 verses 1 through 5 we read, And there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, or those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam or on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, we don't know the mind of God and why He lets things happen, why He allows tragedies to take place. But we should look at all such tragedies and use them as opportunities for ourselves to remember that we all, in and of ourselves, without the grace of God, are deserving of such devastation. God calls us to turn to Him rather than living without Him. Every human being that was born as a child of Adam deserves the devastation, the heartbreak, the heartache, the wrath of God Almighty And so when we see a tragedy, Jesus says it should be a reminder for us to realize if we haven't repented that we need to repent. And it also helps us remember the grace that God has shown us, the mercy that He has poured out on us in Jesus Christ. So are any of you living without Christ? Are any of you foolishly thinking that you will live forever? Are any of you living as if you were undeserving of that same devastation and tragedy that others have suffered? Jesus says when we see tragedy, it should be a reminder to us that we are no different. But for the grace of God, go I. I cannot answer why God allows a particular tragedy to happen, but I do know for absolutely certain why God allowed the city of Samaria to come under siege. God had told his covenant people what would happen if they remained in rebellion to him and were spiritually adulterous by worshipping other gods leviticus twenty six and twenty or leviticus twenty six verses twenty seven and twenty eight says if in spite of this you will not listen to Me, God speaking here, but will walk contrary to Me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I Myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Oh, and in my notes, I did not include verse 27. Verse 27 continues, Verse 28, You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters as part of the discipline that God brings upon His people. For them being unwilling to repent. For them worshiping other gods persistently rather than worshiping Him. By persisting in their rebellion rather than repenting. I could also read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 52 through 57. It is several degrees more graphic than anything we have read this morning. I'll leave that to your own pursual. So you see, God was not otherwise occupied or disconnected when the Israelites were suffering uh, under desperate circumstances. Even though the people of Samaria were praying, God was not just not hearing, He was actively not answering. It was God's judgment that caused the circumstances to become so dire that a mother would be willing to boil and eat her own child. We don't hear this enough But I would be an unfaithful shepherd if you didn't hear it. It is an awful thing that God was doing to those Israelites because of their rebellion and spiritual adultery. And even though it was awful, it was also just, good, and loving. God says to us that if we spare the rod in our parenting, that we spoil the child. Why does God tell us to spank our children? It is not because He wants us to punish our children. Let me say that again. God tells us to spank our children, but it is not because He wants us to punish our children. Spanking is not for punishment. There is a big difference between punishment and discipline. Spanking is simply to get the child's attention. It is part of the discipline process. Furthermore, since I'm on the subject, it is sinful and abusive for a parent to take out their anger on a child through spanking. And I probably owe my, my own children uh, apologies for not uh, spanking with the, the right heart motive. And being angry and allowing anger to to um, to drive my goal rather than loving discipline. And so, parents, I want to remind you, uh, cool down when you're in the discipline process. You go to the Lord first and seek his face, and that will help you slow down. It'll help take some of the anger some of the wrath out of you and help you remember the real goals there in the discipline process. And so this is the same principle that God is expressing. God is seeking to get the attention of His people uh, whom He loves so intensely and unconditionally. But their rebellion and their infidelity is so deeply seated in their souls that God has used the most severe and shocking discipline as He aims at their repentance. And God is not beyond disciplining us in like manner if we are hard-headed and hard-hearted in our unrepentance. God is God. He has the right to discipline us in harsh ways if we will not repent. He loves us that much. The reason God is willing to go to such steps is that eternity faces all of us. And also, God is glorious and He is holy. And when His people live in rebellion, in infidelity infidelity and in unrepentance, it is a slight against Him God is willing to discipline you or those around you to bring you to repentance. Moving on in our passage to verses 30 and 31. I'm not a big fan of government or of those in charge of running the government. I started paying attention to what was happening in government in the late 1980s when I was about 20 years old. And it was clear to me that those in government were not there to serve the public good, but rather to serve themselves and their own narrow ideologies that that invariably were at odds with my newly formed Christian values. So I was pleasantly surprised when I saw in our passage that the King of Israel, instead of being holed up in his, his palace, was out among the people, showing concern for their desperate plight. Look at verses 26 and 27. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on a wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my Lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? So, in verse 27, He says something also, something uh, that encourages me even more. He says, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? That's refreshing to hear a politician say that he is not the end-all and be-all. And I firmly believe that our nation would be in a much better spot if our politicians didn't try and solve all our problems. They promised the moon they diminish our own sense of personal responsibility, and they inevitably make things worse. But before we extol this king too quickly, we need to look a little more deeply at our passage. In verse 30, the king is so upset when he hears about the woman eating her child that he tears his clothes. When you tear your clothes in ancient Near Eastern culture, that demonstrates a real humility that you would be willing to expose your nakedness to all the townspeople of Samaria. But then wait a minute. He did not expose his nakedness because he happened to have sackcloth underneath his royal robes. Look at verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes Now, he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. Sackcloth was not a form of ancient Near Eastern underwear. It would be itchy, and it would rub your skin raw if you wore it underneath your clothes. So what's he doing wearing sackcloth? I believe, in modern terms, He is preparing for a photo op. I think he had thought it through. He left his palace looking for an opportunity to make a show of his deep and profound humility. In my opinion, it is a pathetic display. And it is not unlike what we see on the daily uh, cable news uh, shows. In fact, just this week, you heard about it for people including a US congressman were shot by a man intending to kill congressmen from with whom he disagreed politically and then members from across the political spectrum they stopped their hateful hate, hateful rhetoric long enough to gather for a photo op at home plate and the photo is of them all gathering on their knee praying at the start of this benefit baseball game. And I say, give me a break. Why aren't you praying before now? The point I'm driving at is this. Don't trust any politicians or the political process to make your life livable or happier. Politicians and political issues do not rise to the level of ultimate things like God and salvation. God gave us government and He gave us politics to help our society keep from falling into utter chaos because of the presence of sin. And it will not help us grow closer to God or bring salvation for our souls. That's not the business or the design of government. For many on both sides of the political spectrum, political success has risen to the level only reserved for God. For them, politics has become a form of idolatry. Christians and non-Christians can be and are guilty of placing their trust in politics. This guy who shot the congressman showed us an extreme example What can happen when you place your trust in political success and your side loses? You lose all hope and you think then that you've got to take matters into your own hands. For this guy and for many others in our nation, politics is their God. You know, think about what would happen if your side of the political spectrum won every political race, then the politicians, being self-centered sinners, would try and keep their supremacy. And the political goals that you were so eager to get would become enforced by the state. It would necessarily devolve into a form of totalitarianism. We are not to withdraw from public life. We are not to shun political pursuits. Far from it. We owe it to our families. We owe it to our neighbors to be salt and light in our world. We owe it to our our communities to be active, to uh, participate in the political process, to vote our conscience. but we must not for one moment place our trust in any political party or in any politician. We must drop anchor at Psalm 146, verses 3-6, through which reads, "...put not your trust in princes, in a Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish." Blessed is He whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord His God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. As opposed to these politicians who say one thing one day and do something completely the opposite the next. Every politician will die all their plans will perish. But the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the true King. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Isaiah 11, verse 5 says, "...righteousness shall be the belt of His waist, and faithfulness the belt of His loins." Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Our Lord Jesus Christ, is the King of the universe. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the King of this earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing all His plans to fruition unalterably. He is building His kingdom of righteousness in spite of the politicians. No one can stop Him. And so, brothers and sisters, trust Him. Trust in His sovereign rule. Trust in His plans. Trust Him with all your life. Trust Him for your eternity. Trust Him for your salvation. As we pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that your kingdom and your rule will have no end. We know that you are marching from nation to nation, building your kingdom, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We know that one society or one community or one nation rejects you. You wipe the dust off your feet and you keep right on marching. We thank you that You have graciously called us into Your kingdom. We thank You that You have graciously died for us such as Your love for us. We thank You that we can trust in You even if everything in our society or our community or our life comes apart. And that You will continue to love us O Lord, I pray for any here who are living in unrepentance, who are suffering Your discipline, or maybe in the near future will be suffering it. God, I pray that You would help us to be quick and easy in our repentance rather than kicking against the goads. Help us to remember that You are not only our King, but our loving Savior. And as Hebrews tells us, You're not even ashamed to call us Your brother. We pray in Your name. Amen.